Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for a special webcast featuring members of the Chief Investment Office. I'm Anthony Pastore. So glad you could be with us for this particular recording. So earlier on Friday, regulators closed Silicon Valley Bank after deposit outflows pushed the bank into a bit of a crisis impacting the larger lending industry and, of course, the overall markets. And for some of us, it maybe was a little bit reminiscent of what was going on back in the financial crisis or the start of it back in 2008 and throughout when similar situations were popping up with regional banks at the time. So due to this news, we put together this special webcast for you to get more clarity on what's really going on out there. And of course, we're going to be discussing that with my colleagues, as I said, from CIO, David Lefkowitz, Brad Ball, Leslie Falconio, and John Walshin. Just a quick reminder here, a little bit of housekeeping. We are not going to be able to reference any single stock names. So if you do have any specific questions about we, what we talk about here today, make sure to connect with your financial advisor. So Brad, let me, let me start with you um, as our financial sector strategist here at CIO. I know we've all been watching the headlines, but maybe you can quickly tell us a little bit about how we got here and also why you say that the Silicon Bank issues are really specific to them and not necessarily other regional banks. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, yes, um, SVB Financial, uh, as you're calling it, Silicon Valley Bank, is a somewhat unique uh, mid-sized regional bank. It has about 200 billion of assets, about 175 billion of deposits, and it's got a concentration of activity in Silicon Valley. As such, it has relationships with a lot of VC firms, private equity firms that do business with tech startups. And a couple of years ago, in the midst of the pandemic, that was a very hot, high growth business. Uh, the tech startups were rich with cash and they were depositing them at Silicon Valley Bank at SVB Financial uh, and using the cash to uh, make their salary payments, uh, to make investments, to grow their franchises. Um, unfortunately, what's happened is uh, that uh, VC activity has dried up to some extent, and there has been a significant cash burn among those uh, smaller uh, uh, startup firms. And that means deposit flows have been uh, very steady and aggressive outside of uh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley Bank has lost deposits uh, more rapidly than had been expected. As of Wednesday night, they announced that that deposit loss was negatively impacting their net interest margins, their net interest income, and they revised lower their EPS guidance for 2023. Um, in response to that, again, Wednesday night, they announced plans to sell a big chunk of their investment securities portfolio at a, at a major loss and to raise uh, capital. Uh, both of those things were taken very negatively by the market on Thursday. The stock was down over 60% on Thursday. Uh, and uh, overnight last night, uh, the FDIC uh, got together with uh, SVB Financial. And uh, I think the determination was made during the intraday today that the FDIC would take control of the company, uh, take it into receivership uh, and try to work out the company's situation over the course of this weekend. So where we are today is we're waiting to see uh, what actions the FDIC is likely to take over the weekend. Will they be able to reopen the bank on Monday? And what will the impact of that be on the broader marketplace? So it is a unique institution with unique problems. 
there has been some uh, collateral damage, as you've seen in the equity markets. Other financials have come under pressure, but I don't believe that other financials are facing the same uh, kind of specific risk that S SVB financial is facing. So, Brad, I, I think by the nature of how you ended the last response and my next question, maybe you've already answered it, but you don't think this is another Lehman moment, do you? And by Lehman, I refer to what was going on back in the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008. No, I don't actually, Anthony. I think that um, one major distinction is that the uh, Lehman failure and the global financial crisis really resulted from a credit event um, and a credit event that was negatively impacting an asset that is a mortgage-linked security that was on the balance sheet of virtually every financial institution uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, there was much more contagion uh, impact, contagion risk in the uh, great financial crisis. And as a result, um, the uh, Lehman failure uh, actually had a, a widespread impact. I, I don't think SVB Financial, again, a $200 billion bank, is as contagious uh, as Lehman was, uh, nor do I think that the uh, drivers that I just described of the circumstances uh, are, are likely to, to cause the kind of uh, sell-off and, and contagion risk that, that we're experiencing, that we did experience uh, over a decade ago. Great, thanks, Brad. Last question for you is maybe let's broaden it a little bit. Give us your thoughts on the overall picture for U.S. financials. Uh, and, and, you know, should investors be viewing this maybe as a bit of a buying opportunity or a selling opportunity or, you know, neutral? What, do you, what are your thoughts here? No, I, I think that's the right question to ask, Anthony. Um, we do have a least preferred view on U.S. financials. Uh, we've been cautious uh, coming into uh, this current situation. Um, I think that there has been uh, some uh, uh, excess sell-off and there may be some opportunities I would advise clients to look for relatively more defensive uh, subsectors and defensive names, uh, companies that are very well capitalized and have significant liquidity uh, protection. Um, and actually, within the subsectors, I think the large universal banks uh, might prove to be a bit more defensive. The industry is facing challenges due to rising interest rates uh, and what looks like could be higher interest rates for longer, as well as more aggressive deposit competition, deposit pricing competition. And I think the, the larger universal banks are relatively better situated relative to those risks. There may be some earnings pressure still to come, and that's why we remain uh, relatively cautious on US financials. But I do think that this sell-off in the last couple of days may create opportunities to step in with some of the more defensive, again, well-capitalized, strong liquidity, uh, companies in the sector. Great. Brad, Brad Ball, thank you very much. Appreciate your insights here. Um, David Lefkowitz, let me bring you in here. Uh, uh, David is the head of U.S. equities here for the chief investment officer at UBS. David, uh, how does this situation, if at all, does it impact your outlook for the overall equity markets right here? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. So, yeah, I, I think what it does reinforce, Anthony, is that we're in a late cycle environment. The Fed's been raising rates now. We just passed the one-year anniversary, and, and as we all know, the rate increases have been have been quite aggressive. Um, and in a in a late cycle environment where you've got the Fed raising rates, recession risks are uh, are somewhat elevated. Um, and and I think this sort of just underscores the the point that you know many people have brought up that sometimes when the Fed is raising interest rates. 
uh, you know, something sometimes breaks in the economy. Now, what I should say, what I want to emphasize is that, uh, you know, recession is not necessarily a, a foregone conclusion, but I do think on the margin, this is probably going to lead uh, many banks to think about scaling back some of their lending activity, and that's going to mean uh, that there's going to be sort of less growth in the economy. So it just kind of reinforces the sort of late cycle dynamics that, that we've been in. Well, let me bring this back to the equity market. You know, I, I, think, I think it's important to keep, keep sight of the bigger picture here. You know, really since last summer, the equity market has been in, in a pretty wide range. And, and right now, we're, we're really right in the, in the middle of that range. Um, and, and I think what's going to break, this, break us out, either on the upside or the downside, is really going to hinge on whether or not the economy has a soft landing or a hard landing. And it's, it's probably going to take some more time for investors to really know the answer to that question. Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's, it's maybe helpful to think about the market from, uh, from different scenarios. If, if we do have a soft landing, you know, we could see uh, stocks rising 15% from here. Uh, that's consistent with our, with our upside price target on the S&P 500. Conversely, if we, if we do slip into recession, uh, we could see 15% downside. So like I said, we're really right in the middle of, of this range. We're, we're, sort of, uh, we're sort of in the, in the middle, <laughs> uh, and we're, we're looking for the markets to be largely flat from where we are today. Uh, our year-end price target on the S&P 500 is 3,800, and I just think you know, we, our main message here is that we're late cycle. There, there still are risks of a hard landing, this situation doesn't change those risks in a material way, but I think it's, it's a good example of uh, just that late cycle environment. I think investors have to be just, just a little bit cautious here. Great. Thank you, David. And just before I let you go, where do you see opportunities right now within the larger equity space? What, what, uh, what sectors are you referring to our clients? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. So from a, from a sector perspective, look, I, I think you do want to have some insurance in the portfolio. Uh, so, uh, from that perspective, one of our preferred sectors is is consumer staples. This is going to be this is a, a less economically sensitive part of, of the of the market. Uh, you know, in good times and bad times, people tend tend to still buy diapers and deodorant and toothpaste, uh, and and those are the types of companies that uh, that are that are large in in the sector. Uh, we also like the energy sector. We do think energy oil prices can rise from here especially on the, the reopening that's going on in China and, and just very limited supply of, of new uh, fossil fuel production, uh, given that it's been almost a, a decade now of, of underinvestment in, in energy production. And, and I think what's probably really important, and, and I think why the sector still makes sense in this environment, is these companies are generating very large amounts of free cash flow. The sector has a 10% free cash flow yield. Uh, and the returning a very large portion of that to shareholders. So I think in this kind of environment, you do want to be focused on companies that uh, don't have any debt issues or you know, very, very liquid companies, uh, and, 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 uh, and the energy sector really uh, fits squarely into that. Plus, you get some upside from, from our expectation for higher oil prices. We also like the real estate sector. Uh, John can talk a, a little bit more detail about that if, if necessary. But the... The thing to, to bear in mind about the real estate sector, the listed real estate sector, S&P 500 version, 
is that it, it's, there's a large component of the sector that is comprised of secular growth companies. These are companies like wireless towers, data centers, industrial warehouses. Uh, and and as, as if interest rates fall, as we, as we think they will over time, we've saw a, a big move recently, just in the last couple of days, you know, that should, that tends to boost uh, the, the sector. So that, that's why we're positioned there. We also do still like value stocks, um, you know, just think in a, in a period when inflation is higher than average, value stocks tend to outperform and we're seeing better earnings dynamics for some of those value companies. And the, the last thing I'll just say on value stocks is that I think it's important to bear in mind that when we go through a time of turbulence in the markets, that usually signals a change in leadership. And we know that growth stocks had been the leaders in the prior bull market. And I think coming out of this, it's, it's very likely it's going to be a different set of companies that are, that are leaving us in the next bull market. All right, great. Thank you very much, David. Appreciate you jumping on here, David Lefkowitz from uh, CIO. So Leslie Falconia, let me bring you in. Leslie is the head of taxable fixed income strategy for Chief Investment Office. So Leslie, when, when we're talking about fixed income here, uh, I know that we recently increased our interest rate exposure within our fixed income portfolios around the 3.95% level. And we're looking at right now a little bit of a drop in that 10-year yield since all this news began. And of course, we had some comments from Jay Powell earlier in the week uh, that maybe had an impact on that as well. So with that unexpected drop, how do you foresee the path of interest rates now going forward? You know, the path really hasn't changed. I mean, we, as David mentioned, we're, we're late in the cycle. So we do think that interest rates will trend lower into the second half of the year, probably you know, by the end of the year around that three and a quarter, three and a half level. You know, we, one of the things that we're experiencing this year, however, is just an incredible amount of heightened volatility. I mean, when you think about even what the two-year has done, just in one day, it's it's moved lower by 45 basis points. So I think that part of the volatility will continue. But overall, I mean, opportunistically, as you mentioned, Anthony, we did start to, you know, increase our interest rate risk a, a bit. And we do think that, you know, is sort of the strategy you continue that you want to play going forward. So when it comes to the actual trend, we're still looking for the trend to be, you know, lower by the end of the year. Terrific. Uh, Leslie, thanks very much. And what, one more question for you is, you know, with, with all this headline risk now coming from this, uh, this story with Silicon uh, Valley Bank, um, and now, of course, there's concerns about other banks. You think this is going to maybe even alter the path for the Fed? And how should investors maybe now position themselves within fixed income? Has that changed at all? You know, I, it's it's the the sentiment shift this year, even within weeks, has been just absolutely incredible. I mean, we that's where really the volatility has come from. If you think of where we were during, say, Powell's testimony, the market was pricing in over a 70% probability that they would move 50 basis points at the March meeting. That probability now is about 25%. Now, we know today's employment report, the headline number was strong, you know, wages weren't, you know, something, a point of concern. So the market now is about 25% for March, but we do have CPI on next week. And, you know, I hate to just focus on one number, but I do believe that we have a shift in sentiment again. And, he and here's the problem. It could shift back very quickly. And what I mean by that is now the market really has gone back to post Powell testimony, right? Now we have, you know, 25 basis points of easing price back in. We have the yield curve, two year tenure that now went from a negative 105 to that's now a negative 89 basis points. And why that happened was because the short end came down. So what's happening is now they have a lower terminal rate. 
Now, what we know is that if something is a surprise on the CPI number, that could shift right back up again. You know, but it's it's our, you know, right now, our view that mostly this will be taken in 25 basis point increments, but we know that the situation today and the flight to quality that we're seeing is not going to alter the Fed path in terms of tightening. They're still tightening. We we still have, you know, a ways to go. We're not near the terminal rate. So the only thing that it might shift is the pace. Great. Leslie, thank you very much, everybody. That was Leslie Falconio. So John Walsh, and uh, last but certainly not least here, John is our U.S. real estate and lodging analyst with CIO. John, I think a lot of folks watching the news over the last couple of days with uh, with Silicon Bank have started to maybe get that sense of what was what we were feeling right before or during the great financial crisis. So how do the risks in commercial real estate debt today compare to what was going on back in 2008 and 2009? Yeah, uh, and certainly, uh, first of all, thanks for having uh, me, Anthony. Uh, there, I think there are a couple of very, very big differences. Number one, if you look at the composition of outstanding real estate debt, just leading uh, just prior to the global financial crisis, almost 21% of the outstanding debt was in what's called CMBS or commercial mortgage-backed securities. That tends to be the riskiest part of commercial real estate lending uh, because the lending, uh, the underwriting standards tend to be looser. Uh, it's very, very difficult to go through restructurings. If you look at that today, it's closer to 9%. But I also contrast, if you look at uh, right before the global financial crisis, money that was lent by banks, insurance companies, what are called government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, that composed about 65% of the loans. Today, that's 80%. So we have much better underwriting, uh, much better underwriters, which are much more conservative. So we see a much different uh, picture in terms of risk within commercial real estate debt. Now, that's not to say that there's no risk out there. Clearly, there is. But we think in terms of, uh, you know, Brad talked earlier about lack of contagion. Uh, we certainly, while there will be distress and there will be some, some property givebacks, unarguably, we do not see this as a wholesale uh, uh, risk across the entire sector. Great, John, thank you for that too. And uh, just last question for you before we wrap up today is, how do you, how do you feel that the quality of the, the REIT balance sheets actually compare to that of the great financial crisis? Uh, it world's better. Uh, if we look at the capital structures of even some of the higher quality REITs, uh, you know, back in uh, you know, 2006, 2007, debt levels were very extended, number one. And number two, if you look at the quality of their capital structures, a lot of them use very aggressive types of preferreds that during stress times could be put back at par. And then we had that stress. So if we roll the clock forward today, not only are leverage levels generally across the sector much, much lower, number one. Uh, but number two, uh, in terms of debt maturities are much better laddered. Uh, now, that's not to say that, you know, there, there's not going to be refinancing issues and interest costs going up. Certainly, we've already seen that. But the amount of floating rate debt is generally significantly lower. Uh, and then David mentioned something which is important, which is the composition of the REIT index uh, has changed dramatically since uh, the pre-global financial crisis. And so, the, you, know, the, you know, the quality of a significant portion of the S&P real estate index uh, has extraordinarily low leverage. So while there are going to be a few companies out there that certainly are going to stub their toe over this, we think generally the real estate industry, the public REITs are much better positioned from a balancing perspective today. Terrific. John, thanks very much for that, that great rundown, John Walsh and everybody. And let me go ahead and thank 
my four guests from the Chief Investment Office, Brad Ball, David Lefkowitz, Leslie Falconio, and John Walsh. And thanks for joining us here this afternoon, everybody. And thank you all for watching our webcast today. Obviously, if this story continues to unfold and has any impacts on the broader market, we will be here to respond from our Chief Investment Office uh, and from our webcast studios facilities. You can always visit the UBS Insights page as well at ubs.com forward slash views for any other publications, podcasts, or videos that might be coming out based on this topic and many others. Until next time, I'm Anthony Pastore. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.